And welcome to another Miami Sports Pod. Will Manso alongside Clay Ferraro here talking about a very busy week in South Florida sports. And, and a week, weekend, Clay, every time we turned around there was something going on. We knew with the deadline coming up in the NBA that the Heat might be active. And go figure, they were active. And while they begin the new week without Victor Oladipo because he's dealing with a cold, uh, I think the impression, I think for most, is that the Heat were one of the biggest winners at the deadline, at the NBA trade deadline. Well, I agree. And it, it, was, it was really compelling and entertaining watching what appeared to be this stare down between Pat Riley and uh, perhaps Masai Ujiri, really the Heat front office and the Raptors front office. I, I think as we've followed this a bit more, like you, you realize there are so many more people involved in this, but there was clearly a stare down going on. And I, I think the feeling from Toronto's side on this was that Pat Riley was perhaps a little more desperate than he actually was. And, you know, by, by the end of all of this, I, I feel like there was a report, I think it may have been Mark Stein, that said the Raptors asked for their final offers for, from teams. And the Heat clearly made what was their final offer, which did not include Tyler Hero. May or may not have included Duncan Robinson. Sounds like it did. Um, even though Pat Riley said he had no interest in doing that. And I think the Raptors felt like ultimately Riley would cave and, and would give up Tyler Hero, and he didn't. And the reason why he didn't was he clearly had something else sitting right there, and that something else was Victor Oladipo for literally pretty much nothing. Um, and, and, Will, I, I think the thing about this move is you heard Riley afterwards talking about preserving the, the ability to do something big later on. And, you know, we've heard names like Kawhi Leonard, Bradley Beal, um, potentially in a trade. But he still craves that flexibility. And yet, all of that said, as much as I really liked Lowry, and I sit here and say that, hey, I, I wanted Oladipo over him in the moment. When you're talking about what they gave up, how little they gave up in order to get Oladipo, and also the fact that his ceiling is higher than Lowry's, there's a chance that he could come in here and, and all of a sudden make this team – they could legit be a big three. I, I just feel like he, he hit a home run when you combine who he got and, and who they ultimately gave up. You know, Bielitsa is, is a unique player that they also got. We'll reference him quickly and just to say that it's a perfect replacement for Kelly Olynyk, which Pat Riley described him as a perfect replacement for Kelly Olynyk. You know, you got to give the receive. KO was the only really significant player in the rotation they gave up, and Bielitsa fills that kind of role. But I agree with you on Oladipo. The thing about Oladipo is that people forget he is a legit two-way player. I mean, he's a good defender. Who, and Eric Spolster talked about it on Sunday after practice. He can guard multiple positions, multiple guards, you know, inside, outside. He is a very aggressive defender that I think will only get better as he gets more comfortable in the heat way of doing things in the heat defense when he sees the way Bam and Jimmy and people move to the ball. But then what you look at is his ability to score. And look, he's not going to be asked to take 20-plus shots a game as he was on Houston on a horrendous basketball team. He was basically in Houston told to be almost the James Harden role. Like, go over there and just chuck shots. You know, we need you to create because we don't have anything else to have a chance to stay in games. That's obviously not going to be his role here. But there are two things that, that are impressive about him when it comes to scoring. In the month of March, he's averaging over 25 points a game. Now, again, a lot of that is chucking and, and having to be the primary guy, but a lot of that as well has just been the ability to get to the basket and attack. 
what have you and I discussed and Heat fans until they've been blue in the face discuss about the Heat offense? There isn't a guy other than Jimmy tacking and getting to the free throw line that seems to create in moments where the offense is in a lull. And Oladipo is the kind of guy who can truly, when it's, when it's slogging, and, you know, I know that Eric Spolster says sometimes we like to play in the mud. I get it. But, man, the NBA is not played in the mud. You know, the NBA, you can only survive so much more in the, so much in the mud before you start sinking in it. And we've seen too much of that during the heat, in particular the six-game losing streak, in particular the last month and a half where they have had issues on offense, even when they were winning games. Oladipo can take a game over, score 30, as he's done three times already this year, 30, 35 points, and lead the Heat out of these doldrums offensively until Jimmy, Gordon, Bam, Duncan, Tyler, and everyone else gives, get, gets going and gets rolling. And the second point, and I'll make this quick, they didn't have to trade any of those pieces I just mentioned. Obviously, Bam and Jimmy weren't going anywhere. But when you look at Duncan and Tyler, Pat said it best. He's like, we still – don't want to give up on these guys. We love the upside. We love, we would hate to see them go somewhere and become what we think they can become. And now they can continue to do that here. So it was a win-win. But you know what's funny, Clay, is that there's still, I think the kind of bad taste in the mouth for Heat fans is that while it was a significant move, there's still something a little off about this team. They still need a big, Aldrich decides to go to the Nets, you know, Jang decides to go to San Antonio. What happens at that position? As we tape this pod, they don't have that answer yet. Is it Boogie? You know, is it Denman? Is it is a guy that hasn't even played this season? Is it do they go out? Where do they go to get that other big? I mean, look, there's a reason why Demarcus Cousins hasn't been signed yet. You know, I mean, I mean, I I feel like you you look at and what he was able to do. I think the first couple of games he he showed some flashes in Houston, but. I mean, unfortunately, a big man suffering the injuries that he has, it's just so hard to, to come back from that. He's just not – he's not anywhere near the same player. Deadman intrigues me. But look, Will, I, I'm of the mindset I would rather roll out your best players. And I know I, I may be on an island of one with this thing, but I would rather go small and, and see what you can do with, with rolling out a, a, a front court of, you know, some combination of, of Bam, Bielitsa, Butler, um, uh, 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 Trevor Ariza, perhaps Iguodala, one of those. I mean, I know that sounds really small. I get it. And yet at the same time, I think what we saw in the NBA Finals last year was, uh, yes, first game, there were times where it looked like, hey, the Heat were having trouble rebounding. But as that series went on, eventually the Lakers realized they couldn't play Dwight Howard anymore. And so to me, it's if you have a small lineup filled with really, really good players who can attack, yeah, you might get out rebounds. You know what two of the worst rebounding teams in the league right now, even worse than Miami? The Clippers and the Suns. You can do this a number of different ways where you don't have to be a, a superior rebound. So all that to say, I don't, I don't feel like the need for – Yes, maybe you try to find somebody who's serviceable to, to fill some minutes. Maybe you feel a lot better going up against Joel Embiid if you had to in the playoffs with a bigger player. And yet, to me, it's, hey, roll with what you've got. See if you can build something with this group. I think the elites is a better the elites is a better defender than Kelly Olenek. Um, so I, I feel like you, you've been, I'm talking depth. Bam and Bam yeah. can't be on the court the whole time. So what happens after that? You know, that, that's the issue for me. 
No, I get it. And, and maybe that's that's the issue where you, you bring the elites off the bench. Maybe you start Bam and Ariza and, and maybe you're you're bringing the elites and Precious off the bench. And maybe that's kind of the the way you get around that. Um, I, yes, for depth, I see it. I, but I also – let's put it this way. LaMarcus Aldridge being here and not being here doesn't doesn't change oh, what I think this, this team's ultimate – yeah, I don't – and I felt that way for a while now. So, you know, that's not sour grapes. Um, but I do think this, Will, you mentioned the, the sour taste in people's mouths. I firmly believe what, what Barry Jackson said, that I'm sure LaMarcus Aldridge saw the six-game losing streak here and was like, well, you know, why am I going to go there? And, and I know everybody was looking at this saying, okay, well, let's just wait until – it was wait until Monday. Now it's going to be wait until, um, you know, a couple of other days until Oladipo is able to play. But I don't think you can just get back those six games. This team really has to reinvent themselves and quickly because that's six games that, that you're going to look back on at some point. Man, if we had gone two and four, three and three, then we're not having to fight down the stretch. So all that to say, I don't – I don't think the lack of a big man is a is a huge issue. They do need it for depth. Maybe they 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 call it deadman. To me, though, get the best players on the floor and, and let Spo go to the lab and get them all to work. Yeah, and look, my biggest concern is depth moving forward. And and I think when you look at this team, I'm not that. I will never say I'm fine with a six game losing streak. Trust me, I'm not. But I'm not that concerned in it because. I think we can agree now, right? And I think Heat fans are okay with this. That's why even at the All-Star break, people would ask me, in, whether it be on social media or just in conversation, hey, what do you think the Heat's, uh, you know, what, what do you think the Heat's ceiling is for the regular season? And I said every time, the four seed, I don't think they are in position to overtake a Brooklyn, a Milwaukee, or a Philly. And I'm okay with that. And when you right. look at the East, even after the six-game losing streak, they hear two games out of the four seed. And the mess of teams before, you know, between four and eight and nine, all within two games, I look at it and I say, okay, the Heat are better. The Heat are just better than those teams. So you have to say to yourself, even if whatever happens with their search of a big man, over the course of these final 40 games or whatever, not 40 games, 30 games, whatever it is, can the Heat be two games better than those teams? And my answer every time is yes. Now, a lot of that will depend on, okay, do you keep everybody healthy? Is Gorn going to be okay? Luckily, he's returning now. Or, you know, Jimmy, obviously, his health is everything. But when I look at it, I don't think any of those teams are, are in the same class as the healthy Heat team. Now, the conversation we're having is how do the Heat get in the class of that top three? And that's where a big man and depth and production is an issue. The number one thing is they have to get Duncan and Tyler playing like Duncan and Tyler. And I will say this, even in the losing streak in the last couple of games, they look a little better, especially that game post-All-Star break. And with injuries and stuff, Moore not playing, Oladipo not being available, all that stuff, Jimmy missed the game. You're not going to see the full squad yet. But if those guys get anywhere close to what they can be, and then you get that big three you referenced, I think there's no question in my mind that the fourth best team in the East is the Miami Heat. And if they get rolling into the playoffs, they can compete in a seven-game series in the second round against those teams we just mentioned, those top three teams. Okay. You know, I'm glad you're, you're making the distinction here, too, because I agree with you. I think that the fourth-best team, that, I think that's their, their floor, and it's probably also their ceiling when you're talking about just how good of a team they are, right? And yet, I think they – I don't know that they were better than the fourth best team in the East last year. So let's make this distinction here. There's a big difference between how good you are 
and how many games you can win and also how many series you can win in the playoffs. Because when you get into the playoffs, if it's close enough, it's going to be all about matchups. It's going to be about scheming. It's going to be uh, mental toughness. I mean, it's, it's going to come down to the things that we saw from the heat and the bubble. So let's make this distinction here. I think you're right. I think it's the ceiling for this team is and always has been as far as the regular season goes, finishing in that four or five area, maybe six. And that's okay. I don't think it really is, it makes that big of a difference. With that said, if they get there, look at who they're going to roll out in the playoffs. Like you can roll out, let's say they play, play Brooklyn, right? Like everybody's Brooklyn is, is the big bad team on the block this year. That's the team that everybody's looking at. That's the team everybody's trying to build to beat. Is there any team that can roll out five players to throw at Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden that can match up with this? Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Victor Oladipo, Trevor Ariza, Andre Iguodala. And that doesn't mean you have all five on the floor at the same time, but that's five long, smart, athletic. Yeah. So, you know, I I think there's a real distinction when people ask, so how good are the Heat? Like, like, fourth best in the in the east like fifth best can they get there's a distinction to me between how good they are over the course of a season maybe how good they are talent wise and then there's a clear difference between that and and what their potential is for the playoffs because I feel like last year it's the same thing where yeah maybe they were the fourth or fifth best team in the east but once it got to playoff time and the matchup started and, and you started to see that, that X's and O's stuff and the mental toughness really start to play out, the fact that they had the players they did who were battle-tested and can make life miserable for a Giannis, for the three that I mentioned, for Chris Middleton, for uh, you know, Philadelphia, Tobias Harris. Ben, Joel Embiid still scares me. <laughs> I don't know how you match up with him. And yet I, I think you're looking at a, at a team that can really compete with anybody come playoff time, and that's what's going to be important. Yeah. So now we turn our attention from the Heat. You know, we look forward to, to what they look like. And it's going to come. I know Heat fans are frustrated. And it was a tough weekend with, with big guys deciding to go elsewhere. And there's still the question there, as we referenced earlier. But I do think that as the weeks go on, we're going to have much better conversations as to what the Heat are becoming. And I do think, again, they'll be in that position to be the four seed and make some noise in the playoffs, as they did last year, and at least be in the best position. As Pat Riley said, you know, don't count us out. You know, I, I wouldn't count us out. You know, I, I, I think we can be basically went out and said, yeah, I think we can do what we did last year. I mean, uh, paraphrasing. I mean, he said, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't count against us, wouldn't bet against us. He believes that they have that type of capability. And I agree with him. Now, as we turn our attention to the Dolphins, I want to, I want to spend a moment there because my goodness, over the weekend, the flurry of moves, you and I texted each other. And you tell, Did you see this Dolphins move? And I had been away and I looked at this. My God, they, they traded up to 12 they traded down to 12 you know they traded up to six all in the span of 20 minutes what is your just take on what Miami accomplished in now having the sixth pick of the draft picking up an extra third round pick an extra first round pick in the future as well as to what they were able to do well it tells me that they know that there was going to be a push for somebody to get up and get that quarterback whoever it was that they loved at three. And it turned out here that it was San Francisco who obviously made the big offer. Um, it tells me that the, the Dolphins don't have and, – and we're getting to the point now where teams have started to do a good bit of scouting, right? And uh, they have a pretty good feel for what their board is, is shaping up to look like. And let's just say hypothetically that 
they finish scouting the wider and it's never done until draft night right but they've looked at all these guys and they've gotten a good feel for the big three receivers uh, jamar chase Jalen Waddle and, and Devontae Smith. They've gotten a feel for the tackles and, and maybe uh, Suell and Slater. What this tells me, Will, is they're comfortable with the fact that there's going to be at least three, maybe, maybe even probably four quarterbacks that go in the top five. And so they're going to be sitting there and they're either going to have their pick of their number one or number two non quarterback on the board. So whether that's a Suell, whether that's a, uh, a Jamar Chase, whether that's a Kyle Pitts, I, you look at it and the fact they were able to jump up to six, it meant that they weren't so convicted about anyone in particular among those guys, but they feel really good that they're going to be at least two to three guys that if they get out of the first, they're going to get an elite player that they feel is going to make them better right now and they'll also get that future pick to go along with it. So it did, It told me that after some evaluation, they didn't feel like it was necessary to stay at three to get the number one non-quarterback on their board because they feel at least convicted enough about two to three players they can come away with. So why not add some extra draft capital? I'll be honest with you, the, the flip over and back, what it told me, and, and look, there's no way to know this for sure. This is just us speculating because why would the Dolphins leak or tell anyone what they're really thinking? But to me, it told me they're taking a receiver. <laughs> to me, it told me – well, let me rephrase that. A playmaker. And it could be Kyle Pitts. I guess technically yeah. he's not a receiver. He's a tight end. I get it. But to me, because when you go to 12, right, you're telling yourself, okay, there probably will be a very quality player there. There will be. But as far as, the, you know, in that foursome of Pitts, Waddle, Smith, Chase, you're probably saying your chances are that neither of them will be there as opposed to one of them will. At six – they may all be there, you know, yep. and if, if they wanted Sewell, you know, if they, if that was the direction they were going, I think they would have taken him at three. I don't think they make the move because if you really feel that he's a generational type of tackle and a guy that's your next 10 year guy that you need to build around, you can't take the risk of going down to six or 12 because the Bengals very much, very well could take him at five. And the, look, there's a very good chance given that your board coming back from an injury, that that's the direction they go if they don't want to go playmaker. So to me, if they really wanted the tackle, that they stay at three. I think six is too high to take a guy, you know, like Slater, who's more of a guard-tackle combo. I don't see them going in that direction at six. Now, if they would have stayed at 12, then maybe they would have been targeting him or stay, you know, somewhere that, that type of mold. But to me, going back to six tells me they're going to take a playmaker there. And they probably have one targeted that they feel, again, that the first four picks are going to be quarterbacks that the fifth pick is going to be Sewell, and that you're going to have your pick of your top target. And I think they feel good about it. And let me tell you something. If they do, that's a hell of a move by Chris Greer because they have put themselves in position to still get who they want, an extra two picks including a first rounder. And here's the most important part. They are acquiring assets to the future so that if in the off chance that Tua just really is a bust, and there's no reason to think he's going to be a bust, but let's just say he is not the guy you thought he was going to be, you have all these draft picks in the future, including multiple first-round picks, to then maybe either package and move up to another quarterback in the next couple drafts, or just take one wherever you end up landing. Point being, they are set up well for the future. Man, that's such a good point. I didn't even thought about the, the idea that you're, you're putting yourself in a position to, to draft a quarterback in the future, next year, the following year, if after this year, you're, you're not confident. And, and so it was 
you're right. It was a brilliant job of kind of not. So what have we said about this? Like you're never going to figure out whether Tua is the guy unless you surround him with enough playmakers to properly evaluate him. Well, so this does both. You're in the place where you need to be to get the playmaker. You can add another one at 18, and then you can evaluate him. And if it, you feel like at the end of the year it's time to move on, then you have the extra draft capital. move. So, yeah, they, they created the best of, of both world scenarios. So I, it's interesting you bring up that side of it. I was also thinking there's the potential to, you know, let's say you're – you're sitting there at 18, right? And, and you've gotten one, one of the guys that you really wanted at six. And you're, you see the second best guy on your board starting to drop. And he, you get to, to 10. You get to 11. And then maybe you can use that 18th pick, package it with one of those future picks, and then jump up and get the guy that you like second. You know what I mean? So it, it creates that kind of flexibility too. But I think your, your point about – Maybe hedging isn't the right word, but creating the best of both worlds where you can better evaluate Tua while also making sure that you're, you're protected and you're able to make a move in the future if you decide that he's not the guy. You really did put yourself in a great spot all the way around. Look, the, the, they go in with the intention Tua is going to be great, right? He's going to be their future. And all these assets are just going to be weapons for Tua or weapons for the defense to help, you know, help the offense as well with a great defense and the Dolphins are just in a, in a in just a great situation they are and and credit to Chris Greer again Brian Flores they have a plan they stuck to it what they pulled off on Saturday was just wild very rare do you see that kind of movement a month away from the draft where it's just it all happened in, in like I said 15 20 minute window which means the Dolphins clearly had a plan this wasn't like hey, they made the pick and then the Eagles called and like, oh, should we do that? Maybe we should. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Knew, yeah. hey, they were in communication with the two teams saying, hey, we're going to get this done. And when we get this done, we'll get something done with you. They knew what they were doing and they worked it to perfection. And, and they're in, a, in a, just a really good position with the draft a month away. So from that, we turn our attention finally to the uh, Miami Marlins. You know, their, their season begins on Thursday. And Clay, it's the second or third year in a row that Miami Marlins had the best record in spring training. <laughs> I know that spring stats don't matter, and I know that wins and losses in spring don't matter, but I think there is, man, we overuse the word culture with the heat so much, and, I, and people laugh at us in Miami for using it so much. I do believe, though, that the culture that the Marlins are building to really believe and, and think they can win is starting to show. And, you know, we had Miguel Rojas on our on Sports Sunday, and, and Miggy talked about that we are a team that believes what we did last year wasn't a fluke and that we don't even care what people say because we look up and down our lineup and we see we have so much, and Miggy's words were, so much talent from top to bottom in the organization. Here's a guy who's been here longer than anybody on that roster and has seen the ugliness of the end of the Loria regime, the uncertainty of the end of the Sherman Jeter regime, and all of a sudden, the incredible playoff run last year to shorten season. I buy what Miggy says when he tells me that there's all this talent. You know, Jazz Chisholm wins the job. They've got the rotation of young arms. I can't sit here and tell you that I think the Marlins are making the playoffs again, but I will say this, Clay. I don't think they're as bad as people want to point them out to be as a 70-win team that's going to struggle this season. I don't see that happening with, with the rotation they have, the bullpen they've built, and the solid lineup. I think they have a solid lineup that can score some runs. 
And by the way, Will is not somebody who's going to like pat himself on the back, but dude, do, do, do a search real quick. Look at how Will has predicted the Marlins win totals. Uh, last year obviously was, was a different story because of uh, the, the shortened season. Uh, but I, what was it the previous two or previous three years where you were within like one game? I think two years, I think one year exact and two years within a game. Last year, <laughs> it's crazy. Last year, I, I said I think they'd win 25, 26 games last year, and they won, won. They won 31, I think, right? They won 31, which doesn't sound like a big difference, but when you're only talking about 60 game season, that's, a, that's right. a big, five, six games is a big difference. I think but, but the point is that you, you have a really good bead uh, historically on, on what this team is going to be. And, and I agree with you, by the way. And so here's, here's a question apropos of nothing, but if they were in a different division, do you think they would have a better chance at actually making a run at a wild card spot? Look, I think the Marlins are – I think you could argue the Marlins are the fifth best team in the division. I'm not saying they are – I'm not saying that they're, they're going to finish the last one. I'm saying I think you can make a true logical argument that they're the fifth best team or, I guess the better way to put it, the worst team in the division, but about the 14th or 15th team in baseball, right? Yeah. Is yeah. the upper half of the teams, which is your right in the playoff mix and race to make the postseason. So essentially, the Marlins are penalized because they play in probably the toughest division. It, it, as they, you know, Miggy called it, Madeline called it a black and blue division. But I could see the Marlins finishing with a top 15 record, but yet, or top 15 team, but yet finished last in the National League East. It's that crazy and that close in the NL East. Yeah. And, and so I, I think the. When you come up with your win total at the at the end of this week, because you always do it right before game one, you keep that in mind if you're listening to this. Like, and, and look, if you're a diehard Marlins fan and you li- you've listened this long to the podcast to get our take on the Marlins, you, know, you you know this. You know that the division is really really tough. It is a black and blue division, and yet I agree with what Miggy said, and I agree, and I think Derek Jeter said this actually about spring training that. There is something about learning how to win and and experiencing that. And so, like, for a team like the Yankees, for a team like the Red Sox when they were really good, for, you know, uh, Cardinals, teams that have won big and and, uh, Dodgers, winning spring training games means nothing. Because they've gone out there and they've they've won the the big games. They've won the World Series. They've won the, the the, the postseason. They've won games that have mattered. And yet, if you're the Marlins and, and you have a young group of players that have never won major league, and I'm talking about the last couple of years when you have players who are making their, their debuts in spring training, they've never won major league games. When you spring training, it kind of feels good. And, and learning how to win means something. And coming out of a game, and it sounds stupid, but, man, you look up and you see that your, your team has more runs than the other team. Well, hey, that matters to, to a young player. And, the Marlins are filled with them. And, and I do think that there's going to be not just one, but a number of points in this season where this team feels like it's, it's in the wall. And, and the fact that they're in the black and blue division, maybe it feels like it's, it's a bit insurmountable. And yet they made the playoffs last year. And they're going to look back and they're going to remember what it took to, to get through. And they fought through more stuff last year than they're going to have to face this year. They, they don't ever have to face again in their entire careers. I, I mean, having to, stick 18 players in a hotel room and you know I mean it's like you're never gonna have to deal with anything of that magnitude so you go on a six game losing streak in June you're gonna look back and say well you know what this is nothing compared to having to sit in our hotel room for a couple of weeks so I I just I feel like there's gonna be a mental toughness with this team 
that was born from from winning games, winning big games, making the postseason, and also the fact that they were galvanized because of everything they went through last year. And all that said, maybe they do only win 75 games. Maybe they, maybe they win 70, whatever it is. Uh, I still think that will be a marked improvement, and, and you got to feel good if that ultimately is what happens with the trajectory of this franchise and what they're building. Yeah, and that's and that look, I I think if we get a chance, I'm going to try to uh, Wednesday maybe we drop a, a little Marlins preview pod for Thursday or you know something like that. Uh, certainly a write up for local10.com because I do think I want to discuss further some of the positions, some of the things. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're having talked about the Heat and Dolphins already, now we're getting into the part where I really want to give the Marlins their due because I do like what they have. I do feel that they're going to be a good team. And I'm, I'm excited. It's weird. I'm genuinely excited. I guess, well, first of all, with the pandemic last year, we were excited about any sports starting. But, I, Very, but true. Very true. Baseball season, you know, spring wasn't quite the same. We'll be out there on Thursday. I know you're going to be going live during the day, me as well. Um, I'm looking forward to, you know, again, like Miggy said, Sunday, just having fans there, the return of that. I really think this team is going to be fun. I would be shocked if the Marlins are a bad baseball team. I would. I just, with their pitching, uh, the depth in the bullpen now that they were able to do, which was the focus for Kim Ng in the offseason, uh, and I think a nice lineup. The, the only thing the Marlins have, I think, going into the season that's a concern is that they don't have much depth as far as, especially in the outfield. Look, you know, you have – you have your outfield set, and I, and but when you get into you know Lewis Brinson and Sierra and the depth there, post Duvall, Dickerson, and Marte, if anything happens, then yeah, you're definitely counting on guys that you're not sure if you can count on, you know, consistently. That's a concern. Right. How is Jazz going to hold up? You know, he looked impressive in the spring. It's definitely not going to be the same regular season and the pitching and the, the scouting reports and things. That's going to be interesting. Uh, but I, I still, you know, how are you going to work? They're really hurt by not having a DH. How are you going to work Aguilar and Cooper in the lineup? How yeah. What makes the Marlins maybe more than any other team in baseball are really got screwed by the no DH this year in the National League because uh, Coop in the lineup and Aguilar in the lineup is a nice one-two punch to have that they cannot have daily. They just can't right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So those are things I think we can discuss and look further into. So uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll also follow the Heat. I I, I cannot wait to see all the people in a uniform. I'm, that's what I think more than even baseball season is how Oladipo fits with this team. Look, man, three years ago, if if you had told me, hey, in in three years, you're going to have Victor Oladipo and Jimmy Butler on this team, like you're talking about a championship. And that's not even that's not even discussing Bam Adebayo. I mean, that's how good Oladipo looked like he was going to be and where he was heading. But he tore his quad. And, and yeah, he may not be the the high flyer win a slam dunk contest player, but he's still so explosive with the ball in his hand, so fast, so quick. And we didn't even get a chance to discuss this, Will, at the top of the pod. Man, finally, you have a defensive presence in the backcourt. Finally, somebody who's going to really make life tough. And here's the other thing, and we'll end on this, Will. Victor Oladipo wants to be here. He has wanted to be here forever. And, you know, I, I think there's something when you talk about someone that talented who is in a contract year, who is playing to prove that the men who, the, the people who run this organization should give him that big deal to stay here. The next few months, you are going to get the very best of Victor Oladipo that you are going to get for the rest of his career. You're going to get not only a contract motivator, Victor Oladipo, you're going to get a situation motivated because he wants to be here 
And he's going to get a deal somewhere, but, man, he wants to be here. So you're going to get the best Victor Oladipo. You're right. That's a great point. It's valid. Very, very good. So that's something to look forward to as the new week begins. So we got a lot going on. Panthers had a nice weekend as well with a couple wins in Dallas. So uh, uh, a lot to happen and a lot to continue. We'll continue the discussion next week. And, again, we'll try to drop a little Marlins preseason pod midweek uh, before they get going on Thursday. Appreciate you listening and subscribing. That is your Miami Sports Podcast.